Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. friends and listeners and welcome to yet another episode of season seven of the thought herbies podcast and this is episode number 19 already looks like if season seven will be coming to its end soon you know the maximum i do in a season is 24 shows but of course season eight will follow after that no worries so in this episode 19 my guest comes from uh, Quebec from the French part of Canada, Mathieu Ravignat, and we are going to speak about the French Gnostic Church and about Egyptian masonry. Very exciting subjects which are more related than you would think at first sight. I hope you have had a nice start of this new year. I hope you enjoyed our first episode last week. Lots of good feedback I got. And as we are speaking about feedback, well, why don't you send me some? But in order to send me some, you should probably go on the website, the website which is thoshermes.com, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. And there you will find the possibility to send me voicemail, also a contact page, or of course you can send me email, info at thoughtservice.com. And why not use Facebook or Twitter as well to send f comments and criticism and ideas. Well, greetings to all of you who are here for the first time. It's great to have you here for the first time. And greetings especially also, of course, to everyone who has it's been a returning customer, as we say. It's great to have you. Um, for all of you who don't know, on the website you will find also all the shows that have been produced so far, uh, well beyond 100 by now. And uh, um, I can only ask you to go there and look up the show notes because a lot of interesting information can be found there. Well, and while you're there, yes... Why not become a patron? Um, we need your support, guys. Uh, we need you to sustain, to make this podcast sustainable on the long run. And please consider becoming a patron. Uh, go on the website and you will find that Patreon button there. And if you're already on Patreon, well, just look for CH Podcast or Thoughts Hermes Podcast. You'll find us there. Click on the little button becoming a patron one dollar per show is already the first step to be a supporter of the show and we need you and thank you to those of you who are already supporters of the show i want to make this intro a bit shorter here today because well maybe you get a bit fed up with me repeating always the same things i might think about something else in season eight but well i already gave you a challenge once unfortunately we never met that once we meet a certain challenge, a certain level of Patreon supporters, I will not continue to do any bidding for it anymore here. Well, maybe that will incite some of you to become a patron. Uh, 
Right. Um, well, you know, of course, now what comes, there is some music to come. And this show always presents music and often music from our own listeners, friends here who send me music and who ask me, uh, well, I have asked them to send it to me and then they come up with it that present it to me and ask me to play it. And today we have Ben Brown, Ben, who has sent me his music and I find it very interesting and He's a recording engineer and musician based in England, in Scotland, sorry, in Scotland, of course, between Glasgow and the Black Isle in Scotland. And the music we're going to hear here today is was made during 2020 and partly finished also in 2021. Um, and it's something he always wanted to make. It's a, it's, he has been very much inspired by his spiritual workings, he said. So Benjamin Brown, or Ben Brown, as he calls himself, is he can also be found on Bandcamp with his music. And uh, all the details about him and his music that I have, you will find them in the show notes. But um, we are going to play three of his tracks here today. And let's right delve into the first one, which is called Desiring the Company of Iron. So have a good show here today. We start with Ben Brown's Desiring the Company of Iron. Enjoy. Thank you. 
Company of Iron by our listener Benjamin Brown from Scotland who offered us his music this week. Thank you, Ben. Great that you made contact with me. And if someone out there wants to do the same, I'm always happy, as I have said many times here on this show, to receive your personal music, the one that you wrote, that you performed, and which maybe also has some relation to what we talk about here. So, and we talk here about French the French Gnostic Church and Egyptian Freemasonry today with our guest Mathieu Ravinia. Mathieu is a Belgian-Canadian, but he lives in Canada, in Gatineau, Quebec. He was born in completely bilingual French-English environment, as it often happens in his Canada. He's a researcher by trade and has an MA in philosophy. And he wrote those books because he's also personally very much involved uh, in, in the esoteric work, in Freemasonry, etc. But he also possesses, as he will tell us, a seventh degree black belt in traditional Okinawan Gojuryu Karate and Kobudo. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, the reason why I invited him, I found out about his really, really interesting and very big books on first the French Gnostic Church, then he wrote also one about the Eluko, and we had uh, another episode here on the Elucoan already a few months ago, so we are not going to talk about that book here today, but also about his latest book on the quest for a lost right, as he calls it, on Egyptian Freemasonry. And it is only partly what we know today about being the Memphis Misraim right. And as I usually read an excerpt uh, here, I do that here again today, I would like to quote from the introduction that Mathieu wrote to that book on Egyptian Freemasonry to make it also clear that we are not talking here about some kind of Memphis Mystery, really, but about a tradition that came originally from quite other hermetic sources. So let me read to you excerpts. I had to cut them down a little bit to make them in context uh, without being too long, um, from the introduction of, to that book, Quest for a Lost Rite, The Origins, High Degrees and Spiritual Practices of Traditional Egyptian Freemasonry. The death of Egyptian Freemasonry began in the late 19th century, and the main culprit for its murder was Jacques-Étienne Marconis de Negre, the founder of the Rite of Memphis a mason twice kicked out of the egyptian rite of misraim under his leadership the original hermetic egyptian high degrees began in actual practice to be replaced with scottish rite masonic degrees which were mostly identical to those which were practiced by the ancient and accepted scottish rite at the time because of this there is really no continuity between marconi's rite of memphis and the traditional 18th century Egyptian Freemasonry which preceded him. The marginalization began quite quickly as early as 1881, when the absorbed Misraim degrees were being replaced by a new combined degree system, which can only be called modern. This new system, in its later 97, 95 or 33 degree versions, is typical of the syncretism in vogue in the 19th century as reflected by the addition of several degrees which are not original to 18th century Egyptian Freemasonry, such as Prince Brahman, Pontife de Logigi, Pontife de Mitra, Sublime Cavi, Muni Tressage, and so on. 
Anyone familiar with the history of high degree masonry knows that these degrees do not predate Marconi's and do not have roots in the 18th century Freemasonry. We should pause here and be clear that no judgment is implied here as to the spiritual quality of the Marconi's Egyptian rite, and the only criticism we are offering here is directed to its rather hostile takeover of what we see as being the more original and traditional Hermetic Egyptian Freemasonry. In comparison with original Egyptian Freemasonry, the Marconis and Yarkarite is an attempt to teach all of the spiritual and esoteric traditions of humanity, Eastern and Western, to its members. To this syncretic end, this modern rite adds massive amounts of material which is not traditionally Hermetic, including pagan, Scandinavian, Druidic, South American and North American native material, as well as a lot of Eastern material drawn from Hinduism, Buddhism and even Taoism, etc. We leave it to the reader to judge whether this massive syncretic effort is successful. We do not believe it to be our role to criticize it and it's enough for our purposes here to state that the traditional Egyptian rite of Freemasonry did not include these elements and was narrowly restricted to traditional Western esotericism. So that should give you a little kickstart into what we're going to talk about mostly in the second half of the interview. The first half is more dedicated to the French Gnostic Church and the book that Matthew wrote about this. And um, I hope you enjoy those two aspects of, in the end, very much related issues. And um, I also want to state that this is, for me at least, not at all a Masonic episode. I, as you know, am a Freemason myself and know quite a bit about that. And um, to me that goes very much into, as Matthias says, into the Hermetic realm, into the occult realm, much more than normally um, Freemasonry does. Well, we have had other examples in this show as well already. Take the episode with Jim Rimpole Lamb, uh, when we also were talking about occult masonry. So it's always new things to learn, and we will do that here today, I am sure. And that's why, without f any further ado, let's go to Gatineau, Quebec, and meet our friend Mathieu Ravignard. There's one thing I would like to say before we start. We tried several ways to connect up uh, before we finally succeeded uh, to have a stable connection. So we decided to do this interview via a telephone connection on Zoom uh, because that was stable and good enough. It's not the usual connection sounds that you will hear here today, not what you are normally used to hear on this show, but it's a good sound. We can hear at you very clearly and it was the best way we could do it um, in snowy Canada in, in under the circumstances that we encountered that evening. It was probably just a little problem with the lines that night. Right, so I do hope you enjoy and we now really go over to meet Mathieu Rabignard. Here comes 
the interview. Today, I'm very happy to welcome here on the Thoughts Hermes podcast, Mathieu Ravinia. Uh, he is speaking to us from uh, Gatineau, which is near Ottawa in Canada, where he lives. We are using a phone line here today because that's the best way we could talk from here, from Europe to Canada for some strange reason here today. We had some internet problem, but there's always a solution. And I'm very happy to have you here on your Year's Day. Uh, that's the day we record this interview. Uh, bonne année, uh, Mathieu, and Happy New Year to you and your family, and welcome on the show. Hey, bonne année à vous. Uh, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to, uh, to be here on New Year's Day. Absolutely. And uh, my listeners, don't be scared. It's not going to be a bilingual uh, interview, even though I'd love to. But unfortunately, I don't think that would be nice for most of our listeners. So we stay with English, Matthew, don't we? <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's completely fine. I understand that. <laughs> so, Matthew, um, we are going to speak uh, about your books that you have released. I must say, in the rather short time we have released, you have released three large really large and very interesting, very deep books. Um, one about the Elu Cohen, one about the French Gnostic Church and the latest on Egyptian Freemasonry. And uh, we're going to talk about two of them mostly here today um, because they are really quite amazing books and go really in-depth into the question, into questions which have not been discussed so much um, publicly lately. But um, before we do that, I'd love to hear a bit about yourself as much as you want only, of course. But I think it's always interesting to know who the people are and what is their esoteric background when we talk here uh, on this show. So, Mathieu, how did you become interested and active in that field? Well, thank you for the question. Um, I, I guess it started uh, quite early in my life in, in the sense that I was... Uh, uh, quite young, called to spirituality, and um, um, I remember uh, very early uh, in my life uh, being quite uh, devoted uh, to uh, to uh, um, you know to my to the faith of my family, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, was in my early teens considering uh, the priesthood. Uh, and then uh, when I went to university, I discovered uh, a, a couple of authors that really. Um, kind of um, inspired me uh, to look into uh, Western esotericism, and uh, particularly Louis Claude de Saint Martin, but um, also on the English side, uh, William Blake. The poetry of William Blake really oh. um, inspired me. I remember reading particularly *The Marriage of Heaven and Hell*, and uh, it kind of like uh, rocked my socks. Uh, really kind of uh, stirred me uh, uh, quite a bit. Um, and it gave me an, a whole other perspective in uh, understanding uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition and, um, uh, and then combined with uh, French authors at the time, Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin, of course, as I mentioned, but also um, Eliphas Lévy uh, and um, a few other authors. Uh, and uh, so that, that began kind of a, Re-questioning, I guess, of of the orthodoxy that I had um, I had been um, um, uh, raised in, and 
And then uh, at uh, university, I began research and began um, uh, contacting local esoteric groups and uh, became active uh, first in Martinism uh, and then um, became active uh, in Freemasonry. And then it just uh, grew from there. And uh, particularly in Quebec, we have... uh, we have the great advantage of uh, having an esoteric community that uh, is, is francophone and um, works in the French tradition. So there's a rich uh, variety of groups uh, that, that are perhaps less well-known than uh, France or, or England or, or the United States, but uh, there's a thriving esoteric community in, in my home province, and uh, we, uh, I took full advantage of that and uh, just never looked back. Interesting. So um, I have one or two additional questions to that. You um, you said that you were raised in, in a traditional uh, Christian background. I guess that was a Catholic background in Quebec, right? Yeah, that's right. So yeah. my particularly my mother was, uh, was a uh, devout uh, Roman Catholic, but I, I, I would have to say that my family was rather liberal Catholic. I wouldn't say that they were particularly conservative, traditional, mm-hmm. uh, quite quite open-minded, um, quite tolerant uh, to other cultures. And uh, uh, like another major step when I think about it, another major influence on the direction I took was that um, I began martial arts training and... Uh, that opened me to uh, other spiritual traditions. My first uh, instructor was uh, identified as a, as a Zen Buddhist, and um, mm-hmm. Zen Buddhism was uh, Zen Buddhism was very present in uh, in the teachings of, uh, of of the martial arts that I was taking. And um, I never rem- you know I, I never recall my parents ever speaking badly about other religious groups or, mm-hmm. you know, people who uh, followed another religion. So it was a very kind of open-minded Catholicism, uh, very centered on taking care of the poor and, um, and uh, taking care of others yeah. uh, and a, a personal relationship with, uh, with the divine, uh, which was particularly strong, uh, 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 you know, uh, in my mother. So, so a typical Canadian Catholic then. Yeah, I, I, I was. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good way of characterizing it. Um, yeah. And uh, I know that you've 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 spent some time in Canada, so uh, it's def- definitely a typical kind of Canadian way of viewing uh, viewing uh, Catholicism, its social teachings, and uh, so. Uh, and my particular mm-hmm. parish when I was growing up, and I only knew this in, in hindsight, but the parish that. I attended was particularly, uh, um, how could I say, a modern, uh, forward-looking, and uh, they they uh, involved the parishioners at a, a, a higher degree in decision making, and uh, even women were involved uh, in a, a greater way in that parish than other parishes, perhaps uh, uh, in the diocese. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that you met your your um, martial arts teacher was that before then you had the encounter with uh, Louis Claude de Saint Martin, or was that afterwards? No, it was before. Uh, okay. It was um, okay. yeah. It was I was quite young when I started the martial arts, twelve, thirteen. Um, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Um, I guess they kind of worked in parallel because at the time I I, I hadn't. Um, 
evolved out of my um, my Roman Catholicism, still still held to it, uh, you know, into my late teens. So the effect of um, the effect of Buddhism and uh, and the martial arts wasn't uh, was there and definitely uh, was positive, uh, but uh, it wasn't fully embraced uh, uh, until much until later. Right. The fact uh, that I almost moved to Canada, I have never told it here on the show, but that might be interesting to some of our listeners out there because we have quite a big, large Canadian community listening to the show. So um, uh, you can feel home today, Mathieu, <laughs> in this show. <laughs> well, great to hear it. Uh, I, you know, I, I know that there's a thriving uh, spiritual uh, and esoteric, particularly esoteric community in in Canada and um, it's a big country. So uh, you, if you have to kind of live in Canada to get a sense of the distances and uh, the sense of isolation. So any, any uh, site like yours, uh, which brings us together is, is truly amazing. Yeah, I'm sure you're right. Now you live right at the, at the, corner where the two language uh, the two languages meet basically very close to ottawa and um, has the fact of this dual culture you mentioned the french side which of course with martinism and all of that was very strong in your early teachings um, how, but has that encounter of the two of the two languages and their culture has that change something to the way you approach or maybe ease it in a way, the way you approach um, esotericism and the Western tradition in general? Yeah, well, I, I think, I think like you, you, you probably quite understand given that you're multilingual, that the more languages you have, the better. Um, yeah. The, the access you have to, to the literature and the richness of a particular literary tradition, because you understand more than one language um, is really uh, is really great, and uh, the fact that I grew up in a bilingual environment has permitted me to have access to spiritual and esoteric literature in English, both in English and in French. Uh, and um, um, you know, if I hadn't grown up in this area, perhaps I would have been less bilingual. Uh, if I had grown up in a small um, small village in Quebec mm. or uh, and the same in Ontario, then I, I probably wouldn't have spoken the other language. It's, it's unique. And, you know, having been in this area, it's very unique in the Ottawa Gatineau area where there's a very strong bilingualism. Uh, and um, so I, I think that was definitely an influence. And uh, Freemasonry in this area uh, is mainly uh, an Anglophone phenomenon. So, yeah. um, uh, I, and, having joined Freemasonry and having joined the SRIA, the Societas Rosa Christiana in Anglia. Uh, and is that's the English, I guess, um, inspiration or English uh, traditions that have inspired me in my, uh, in my esotericism. And then uh, on the French side, uh, as, as I mentioned, Martinism. So I think this dual, this bicultural influence has been a major factor in my development for sure mm -hmm. and a very positive one mm -hmm. yes I'm, i'm sure i'm sure as you say the more cultures you can integrate the better in any way and especially in the esoteric work of course yes 
Right, but now let's let's go a step further because um, maybe we start if you if you would start in the order of appearance of those books if that's okay with you. Uh, I, I'd like to talk first to you about the the French Gnostic Church and that book that you wrote and partly translated in 2019. I think it was right. Yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah, and um, so. I think um, we should talk about that French Gnostic Church a bit in depth because there is that name around. But by my experience, not many people who, even those who are inspired by esotericism, who work their own systems, etc., don't exactly know the word church is somehow not clear what it means in that context. Uh, Gnostic Church, French Gnostic Church, a whole bunch of things come together i think it would be wise to that you uh, explain to us a little bit what the french gnostic church is and what it main main um spiritual uh, stream also means sure um and of course this is only my opinion after my readings and i certainly don't pretend to have a monopoly on the truth. And I, you know, I, I welcome um, discussion and, and, uh, you right. know, and criticism and informed criticism. And, but uh, I, I have to say that I think the French Gnostic tradition is probably one of the least uh, understood. Uh, the Ilu Cohen was another one, but um, the French Gnostic church uh, has been one of the, uh, least understood esoteric paths um, uh, in the literature and in, uh, you know, in the Western esoteric tradition as a whole. And th that's what in part motivated my, um, my book uh, is because I saw that there was a lot of debate and a lot of um, um, it, misunderstandings about the, I would say misunderstandings about the tradition. And mm -hmm. that's just because, Uh, I think that some of the primary sources weren't available and it, there's no better time, I think, uh, to be an, an esoteric researcher than, than now. And one of the reasons is because there's been a digitization of archives uh, mm -hmm. going on across the world and researchers and archivists and librarians are doing the monastic work of scanning these archives and making them public, publicly available. And uh, just, just if I can you know, give a little plug, I encourage everyone who's listening to push on the libraries in the world to digitize um, esoteric material because it's mm -hmm. often that material is not high on the priority list. More yeah. our community, the more our community asks for it to be digitized, the more they'll 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 digitize them. And uh, I also encourage people who do ask for those digital copies to make them publicly available, not just to not just to buy a digital copy of something and keep it for themselves when it's a primary resource. So um, what's what the for the Gnostic Church? Uh, what this situation with the digitization of archives has permitted is just a greater understanding of what that tradition represents. Mm -hmm. And so let me just go into that since that was the, that was your question. 
Um, I always think it's really useful when it, in research to to kind of fo follow the historical method by, you know, using uh, periods uh, within an esoteric tradition, so centuries or decades. Uh, identify authors, those actually producing the documentation, and um, also using uh, national or 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 you know. Uh, uh, sub-national um, categories to understand a phenomenon. So first of all, we have to make a difference between the Gnostic Church uh, as it existed in France uh, and the Gnostic Church as it existed in uh, Germany and mm -hmm. the Gnostic Church as it, as it existed in England. And that allows us to, to kind of focus on what the phenomenon is. So my book is not about the Gnostic Church as it evolved in Germany uh, as it evolved in England, but really as it evolved within France as a as a tradition, and right. the, the the modern Gnostic Church um, uh, uh, starts uh, with uh, a person, and that person is Jules Duanel, who mm -hmm. has a, a mystical experience about ref, uh, a refounding um, uh, a Gnostic Church on the basis of of uh, what I would call neo-Catharism or Catharism. Um, and this is a return to a primitive form of Christianity, the term used as a primitive form of Christianity, which has uh, its basis in the Gospel of John, particularly. Um, and we're and talking late, late 19th century, right? That's correct. Yeah, we're yeah. talking about the 18, uh, the last half of the uh, 19th century. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jules Duanel uh, refounds the Gnostic Church based on a spiritual lineage through his vision to, to Cathars. Uh, and he has this vision uh, with the help of a uh, medium who was involved in the Theosophical movement at the time. Uh, referred to as Lady Kathness, and um, she uh, uh, she aids him in having these uh, these visions, and he has a vision that he's blessed and uh, consecrated by Cathar uh, leaders, and he recreates uh, rituals on the basis of uh, of what we know the Cathars. Um, uh, practice so the consolamentum, the breaking of the bread. Mm -hmm. um, there's a there's a confession uh, sacrament, uh, and uh, he um, he makes contacts with the greater esoteric community, particularly in Paris. And at the time, as you know, Pappas uh, had his uh, review l'initiation, uh, and l'initiation really brought together all the esoteric streams of France at the time, right. uh, and. Uh, you'll find Jules Duanel starts to write for Initiation uh, and starts to expose his ideas. But it's also important to say that there was a preparation to these mystical experiences because Jules Duanel was already researching uh, Catharism. He was also uh, re researching certain heretics that were in his city called Orléans. So he, the, 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 the territory was being prepared and, uh, he was already connecting to that spiritual stream. And this, this so this church will start uh, as a small church, and Jill Duanel uh, will uh, remain its patriarch for uh, some time. Uh, and it 
teaching a form of Christianity which is esoteric, which is open to ancient Gnosticism, uh, the, particularly the Valentinian tradition, which which teaches that the human being should have their own experiences of the divine uh, through uh, through various sacraments, but also through prayers. And there's a huge emphasis on the spontaneity of um, of creativity, uh, of love, um, uh, and uh, of um, of the the mystical experience. Mm-hmm. So he, he's trying to facilitate his members to have their own um, mystical experiences from a from a sh- social perspective. The church is is radical uh, at the time in the sense that it believes in, um, in in equality between human beings. It believes that women are the equal of men spiritually at all levels, uh, which uh, it's the it's the first church, as far as I know, in modern history that that um, consecrated a female bishop mm-hmm. uh, as early as in the 19, 1890s. So very forward-looking, uh, but also um, very mystical in its core. And this this uh, church will begin to morph after the 19th century, uh, and it will continue under a second patriarch uh, called uh, uh, Fabre des Essars. And mm-hmm. Fabre des Essars, uh, along with one of his, um, uh, another member of the church, uh, uh uh, Fugueron, uh, his last name, will develop um, a catechism, uh, which is uh, which I refer to as the 1899 catechism, and this catechism is a highly detailed uh, expose of esoteric French esoteric ideas, but also ancient Gnostic ideas, and they're attempting to create. Uh, a universal form of Gnosticism. So Gnosticism at this time begins kind of equated with esotericism. And the church even brings in uh, Masonic degrees. It also talks about the Vedas and it talks about, um, it talks about the Avesta. So there's kind of a universal approach that comes after Gilles Duanel. Uh, and which which allows the church member to study uh, and be initiated in uh, uh, a very broad range of esoteric traditions. So it, it kind of lead, it doesn't abandon at all. In fact, it, it keeps the core, the neo-Cathar core of Jeudouanel's church, but it adds to it the esoteric Western esoteric tradition uh, and also some references to. Eastern traditions, uh, while uh, developing new liturgy, uh, it's a very kind of exciting uh, period in the church. Yeah. So those are kind of like that. That's the beginning. Those are the beginnings of the church, and um, I think that defines a little bit of the phenomenon. The church will become other things uh, afterwards with the patriarchy of Bricot, and uh, and then much later with Amble. It'll it'll turn towards a more kind of uh, Catholic, um, small-c Catholic uh, perspective. Yeah. What I I find always um, interesting and fascinating, and uh, I'd love if you can explain that to us here, Um, we have here a 
And to make that very clear, those uh, men you mentioned, Jules Doniel, and I believe also his successor, Fabrice César, they were not at all ordained priests or or had no function within the traditional uh, church, Catholic church, right? No, that would come later. Um, it's Brico will be will be uh, consecrated or ordained rather as a priest uh, by the Gallican Church, which is a non-conformist, mm-hmm. non-conformist exactly. post, yeah, post uh, yeah. revolutionary France Church. Uh, so not not attached to Rome, but it does have, you know, that that apostolic lineage to Rome. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why the church will also change a little is that it will come under the influence of the Gallican church and uh, Monseigneur Giraud in particular. But before that, uh, you're, you're right, uh, uh, apostolic lineage is understood in a completely mystical and spiritual way. Uh, they're trying to revive the Johannite uh, lineage, spiritual lineage. So they... They're saying that their lineage is mystical to St. John and that it's reawakening and refounding uh, the Johannite uh, lineage of the church. Um, yeah. And I'm yeah. Not, when I say, when I say Johannite, we have to be careful with regards to the, the, the uh, later uh, iteration of the church uh, under uh, Paraprat. Yeah. Uh, because that is another Johannite tradition, but uh, the Gnostic Johannite tradition um, is, is being um, is being revived in the minds of uh, Jeudouanel and Fabrizesal. Absolutely, and that's I mean, Danny has mentioned something that's very important. All those names, of course, there are similarities and differences. You mentioned Valentinian Gnosticism, of course, there is Scythian uh, Gnosticism. We're not speaking about this here in that, and, or at least yeah. not in general. And but what fascinates me is then you have those two gentlemen who who are in who are Freemasons, at least for Daniel uh, Daniel, I think he was a Freemason, and they start a church and give themselves names of a patriarch or a bishop. And uh, it's a construction that is very church-like, right? And that in France, uh, where the revolution has changed so many things, where France has become the first um, so separation of uh, church and, and, and state in Europe at the time. Um, and at the same time, they seem from the outside and but you might explain that a bit deeper than very traditional. And on the other hand, they are very open. They are very, they are very, as you say, they consecrate women uh, as priests. They are very open in their social uh, approach. How, what's the, what's the link to all those currents? What's, what brings that together? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, Why they chose a church, as a um, as a m- medium or structure, um, teach a form of esotericism is an interesting question, and a question, to be frank, that I don't answer in my in my book. Um, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. That's what's great about having this this type of discussion. Um, uh, that and uh, I, I think that. Uh, in the French Gnostic tradition, and you can see it with Lévy, for example, Yifas Lévy, mm-hmm. you have a number of you have a number of people that are that 
are coming out of the Catholic tradition um, and who have gone to seminary or who have began um, their uh, process of ordination and then realize they're in disagreement with a number of tenants um, uh, with, the, with the Roman Catholic Church and they break with the church. Uh, and so they're, they're already trained in a ecclesiastical way. They already have a, you know, a mental structure, which is ecclesiastical. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're, they're, tra- they're that gets carried forward into their esotericism. And uh, Duenel himself is an example of that. Uh, Edifas Levi is, though Edifas Levi didn't, didn't found a church, but you can tell that that ecclesiastical tradition is structuring the way he approaches esotericism. Well, so I think yeah. you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, France is is unique in the sense that it is both a Roman Catholic country and it is a Masonic country. Mm-hmm. So the two live side by side, sometimes harmoniously, sometimes not. Um, and the two communicate with each other uh, in many interesting ways. And from a, perhaps from a more uh, you know, secular, esoteric perspective, that's hard to wrap our minds around, how somebody could exist in both the Roman Catholic, um, a Roman Catholic world and yet be a Mason uh, and, uh, and, um, and kind of, kind of, practice or at least refer to both traditions especially in the 19th century right yeah yeah Yeah, for sure yeah yeah and and, you know we could go into conservative movements and uh liberal movements within the catholic church in france it's a very complex subject but there's a number of churches that are active that are catholic small c catholic and aren't associated to the roman uh, uh church uh uh, yet are basically Catholic. Um, you get that with the old Catholics in, in, in Holland, mm. uh, in France. You get it with the, the French Catholic Church. You get it with the Gallican Church and a number of churches that are set up. And the majority of esotericists uh, in France are, are associated to these, these other churches and not to the Roman Catholic Church, per se. Right. Um, but, uh, so, so there's a, a, a overlap between these non-conformist Roman Catholic churches and the esoteric, the esotericists. For the, as, for the as, Gnostic, as, go ahead, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Hmm? For the Gnostic, the ancient Gnostic, um, um, portion of the, of French Gnostic church, uh, at its beginnings, uh, cause you, you mentioned that, uh, Valentinian and Sethian. There's, um, there's, as as you know, uh, the Nag Hammadi scripts were only discovered, uh, uh, you know, shortly uh, after the Second World War. So um, there's there there isn't the rich uh, sources that we now have on ancient Gnosticism. So the the French Gnostic Church was working on the basis of the. Uh, the heresy um, writers uh, of the mm-hmm. Roman Catholic Church, the opponents of the of the Gnostic movement, and they only had access to the Pistis Sophia, 
and um, probably the books of you or Jew. So um, we're talking about a very small amount of primary sources that they had access to. So I know you have every, every right to, to, to remind us that because we often forget that. Absolutely. Very important. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So we can't kind of retroactively and, and anachronistically uh, <laughs> criticize the French Gnostic tradition for not being ancient Gnostic enough, uh, which, which some do, because they didn't have access to uh, all the, the resources and the research now that, that, that uh, has um, exploded on Gnosticism since finding the Nag Hammadi uh, texts. So you can tell in the 1899 Catechism of Fab de that the Pistis Sophia is the text they're using the most. Um, and it, it's quoted extensively uh, in the 1899 Catechism. So there's, I would say that at the beginning, because you asked me how all things are, how they're kind of bringing everything together, I would say that they're taking historical information from the from the from what they know about the Cathars, and they're taking historical information from the primary sources that they know about the Gnostics, and they're refounding a tradition uh, using their own spiritual inspiration. And uh, it's interesting that the majority or a good part of the membership at the beginning of the church are poets and artists. So there's a lot of Fab de himself is a, is a, was a rather well-known poet and well-respected poet. So there's a lot of poetic um, uh, approaches to the church. Um, and Jardouinal himself, a lot of the liturgies that he composed are poetic in nature. So there's also an aesthetic um, link between their understanding of Gnosticism uh, and what they taught. They, they're, they're, they're Gnostic artists or they're artist, artist Gnostics, and they they want they 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 want Gnostics to be creative, and they want uh, members of their church to um, to have creative experiences. Which is a thing to me, at least in my opinion, that should be more often reminded to our more contemporary um, esoteric and occult orders and, and organizations. Yeah, I think that there's something very um, uh, rational. Uh, uh, that's kind of a strange word to use in an esoteric um, context. But I think that we're today, we're, 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 uh, and this is what's exciting about the time that we're in with regards to esoteric research. Uh, we, um, we're, we're using the scientific method, people like, uh, uh, you know, Stuart and, and myself and, and a few others, um, we're using the, the historical method because of, um, because of our academic background to understand uh, the esoteric phenomenon uh, in um, in a different way than perhaps it's been understood before. But I think what we can't lose sight of is that there's an enormous amount of creativity uh, in esoteric traditions, and there's uh, a, a tremendous amount of of, of uh, experiences, spiritual experiences that are that are um, feeding the development of these uh, esoteric orders, and that's a very hard phenomenon to to get a grasp on um, and to, uh, to, to understand. Um, so. 
Yeah, I think, would, I think it's important to point that out. Absolutely. Would you, I mean, it's a strange statement maybe I'm making, um, but uh, I wonder if you, if you would agree on that. Um, if we say that the French Gnostic Church and similar movements around um, are the esoteric answer to Christianism, I wouldn't say Catholicism, but Christianism, and is then Martinism in the same way at the time, back then, the esoteric answer to Freemasonry? Ah, that's interesting. Um, I like that. Uh, I think, though, that um, Martinism, uh, at least in its original form, and by original form I mean um, uh, uh, Martinez de Pasquale, mm -hmm. appears, to, appears to me to be um, kind of an attempt to... Uh, to uh, transform Freemasonry uh, into a vehicle for teaching a specific doctrine, which is a specific uh, interpretation of the fall of man and his reintegration. Mm. So, um, and he uses the Masonic symbols and he reinterprets them. Uh, and he, he, he actually rewrites uh, certain Scottish rite-based degrees to, uh, to do that very, very thing. So it's the choice of a particular vehicle, it, it being Freemasonry. Uh, and uh, whereas with the Gnostic Church, uh, there is an independence with the Masonic tradition, and there's an attempt to create a place where uh, a certain um, ecclesiastical tradition can be practiced, which is in harmony with, um, with Western esotericism. So I think they had, this is why it's also often referred to as the church of the initiates, uh, but it was also an initiatic church, mm -hmm. but uh, it was a place where a Mason or a Martinist or um, uh, a host qua could go uh, and, and um, participate in the sacraments and feel at home uh, and feel um, like he was learning something about his own tradition. So that's, that's the way, I think that's the way that I would put it. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. It, of course, it's also, you said that earlier, the, your that the differences between the French and the English path of masonry are sensible uh, and they they play a part in, in what we are saying here, aren't they? Yeah, for sure. And I think that, um, you know, the difference between culturally, the difference between the Protestant um, way of seeing the world and uh, a more Roman Catholic one, uh, you, you know, the Protestant who becomes an esotericist and the Catholic who becomes an esotericist um, uh, don't perhaps their souls don't need exactly the same thing um, or exactly. at least their, their understanding of what spirituality should be is not exactly the same. So uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting to see the differences uh, between, and that's why I think Martinism um, in a way uh, because of it's more 
um, you know, mystical Christian perspective uh, was a stronger movement in France than, um, I don't know, than something like the Golden Dawn or, or yeah. um, another tradition that, that comes out of the, the English mindset. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and then there is, of course, that third current in Europe, in France, in the in the non-English speaking countries, maybe uh, we should say, which is the um, esotericism without a religious background and framework, or even against the religious background and framework. Uh, and that brings us already one step closer to the other book we wanted to talk here today, uh, which is the book on Egyptian Freemasonry, right? Right. Yes, and I'd be happy to uh, be happy to speak about that book as well. Yeah, well, we, uh, we'd love to. Well, we could go on for another hour on the French Gnostic Church, but I'm afraid I I have to move a bit on because otherwise, but um, <laughs> which only shows with your next book because I think we're going to talk about that in the end. There is some project in the back of your mind already. You announced that in your latest book. Uh, we'll speak about that at the end, but at least we have hope that we can have you, have you back on the show then. Okay, and now let's, as always, take a little break in the middle of this interview. I thought we'd take the break now where we have basically finished talking about the French Gnostic Church and will after the interval come back with that other book we talk here today with to Mathieu Ravinia, which is that book on the Memphis Mithraim Rite, so on, on Egyptian uh, Freemasonry. And um, there are more links between those two topics than you would think. And that, of course, it's also basically because Mathieu has written two really lovely and extensive books on both topics and especially he is really highly knowledgeable i i'm sure you realize that already so but it's now a musical break and we return to our friend ben brown who has given us the music for today's show and who has written and also recorded it we are going to hear his second track a little bit longer than the first one which is called spirits inside the circle that's going to come up in right for a few seconds and as you know after that after that piece of music we are returning immediately to the second part of the interview and carry on with Mathieu Ravigna and at the end of the interview there is track number three by Ben Brown and that third track is very rightly named for our show it's called Trismegistus so we'll have now first spirits made sorry spirits inside the circle sorry about that spirits inside the circle it's called then Mathieu Ravigna will come back to us and we'll continue to talk and after the interview it'll be Trismegistus all music by Ben Brown
the latest book that appeared by Mathieu was that book called um, Quest for a Lost Rite, The Origins, High Degrees and Spiritual Practices of Traditional Egyptian Freemasonry. And of course, everybody who hears about that or reads about that will immediately think of Memphis Misframe Rite. And what I find so interesting about your book is uh, that you reconstruct part of the degrees, not all of them, but you'll tell us why you chose in particular those degrees that you did choose, but also you okay. then reconstruct the spiritual methods of the right. So you just, you don't leave us just alone, so to speak, with the, with the <laughs> ritual, but you, 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 you go much further. You go with some of the degrees, you go a step further and that I find a particularly fascinating approach in that book. But let's go back to the beginning. A, why did you become interested in this particular subject of Egyptian masonry, which to me is always a, f I love it, but it's uh, get me right. I'm not saying this from the perspective of the Freemason I am, but to me, it's well, only, it's, it's more than Freemasonry. It's magic and occultism in Freemasonry, right? The, the, the whole Egyptian approach. So I, I find it an extension and not, not something strange to Freemasonry. Um, I don't know if you share that opinion, but, um, that's my personal view. So what, what brought you on that path? What did you, what did you, um, what did, why did you do it? Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I, I did it because um, partly I uh, felt um, that a, a little bit um, um, dismayed at the lack of uh, historical information on what Egyptian Freemasonry uh, was. Uh, so to me, the literature that existed on Egyptian Freemasonry, at least um, um, at least available uh, publicly, uh, was very weak uh, historically, and mm -hmm. I wanted to explore. I wanted to explore the phenomenon, um, and uh, it's it's interesting because that book is uh, a book where um, it took a really long time for it to um, appear. Uh, even even writing books that are mainly research based, they're a creative process, right? Um, sure, and sure. I, I had this idea that I wanted to know uh, more about the authentic Egyptian Masonic tradition um, in France, uh, but I didn't know where the book would go. Um, and when I started discovering things, this this and it was the same thing uh, uh, with my Ilu Cohen book. One thing leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another. It's, it's like a process of creation and inspiration and communication from, um, from the tradition itself. Uh, and uh, so it started out as an exploration of, of the historical um, facts and the historical archives that we have uh, on the Egyptian tradition and then it uh, it grew from there, um, and uh, so I think that that that's what motivated my um, my first attempts. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I have to add something: the French Gnostic uh, Church book has an accompanying manual, um, a prayer manual, which I wrote 
uh, co-authored with the with one of the French Gnostic churches mm-hmm. um, uh, active today, and so it has an accompanying book. And you would have also um, noted that my Elu Cohen book has a lot of practices in it. Absolutely. And this, yeah, and this is because I'm motivated by giving spiritual tools to. Um, my fellow Mason, my fellow esotericist, I, I, I find that that is um, something which I'm, I'm passionate about and I think is useful to the esoteric community than just writing a book, um, a historical book, though that's very useful too. And translations are really crucial and I really admire the people who do that work. But um, I find particularly when I translate from French to English, uh, I find that kind of boring because I'm bilingual. Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't need to translate something to, to read it. Um, mm-hmm. so only translating things is not particularly interesting to me. Um, so there's always that added amount in my books, that added portion, which I'm really passionate about. And that is making, uh, practices, uh, and uh, initiation rituals you can actually use available to the esoteric community. And that, that's what uh, I, um, I'm really, um, that's what really inspires me when I'm, I write my books. So the historical mm-hmm. portion is just to inform that, that kind of reconstruction. Yes. Um, so I just want to be useful to people. You know, that I, we don't, when you write a book, you, you want to be read and you want to be useful spiritually to your fellow uh, fellow human being, and uh, I just want at the end of at the end of writing the book that I can I can publish it and say you know this is going to be useful to somebody's soul, yeah, somebody's somebody's well, well, spiritual quest. Well, I can tell you, I'm sure this is because I mean we're talking about uh, a book just for our listeners here who don't have the book in front of them for about a bit over 500 pages on. A4, so that that's a quite large, a large brick, as we say, um, and it's full of really interesting information, as you said, first by this um, more historical background part, but then starting at about 50, page 55 with this reconstruction of the right degrees. Now, why did you particularly choose? It starts with the 44th degree. We most of people here know that we are talking about 99 degrees in in, in Egyptian Freemasonry in uh, in general. Why did you start there? Why didn't you start further down? What what were the choices that you made to choose those about 15 or 20 degrees that you explain more in detail? Yeah, uh, th- thanks. Thanks for that question. Um, I what I did was I was trying to find what was unique to the Egyptian Masonic tradition. So that was the first thing. I didn't want to translate and reconstruct rituals that um, are, are easily obtainable, or also that um, are exist under other Masonic jurisdictions. Um, so, for example, a good part of what we call Egyptian Freemasonry today, um, a, a good part of it has degrees which come from the Scottish Rite. And mm-hmm. they're slightly different, but, you know, in, in the whole, they're, they're uh, if not identical, very similar to the ones that exist. So 
I wasn't interested in, in, in those degrees because, um, they're readily, readily available. And, uh, as a Scottish, uh, Freemason, Scottish right Freemasonry 32nd degree myself, um, having been through those degrees, uh, um, that wasn't, I don't particularly think they're Egyptian. Right. Uh, right. And in, in the beginning of my introduction, I make, I, I, I define what the founders of Egyptian Freemasonry thought Egyptian Freemasonry was. <laughs> um, and basically it comes out to saying that uh, Egyptian Freemasonry is hermetic Freemasonry. And there's a, a good distinction between Hermetic and um, uh, Egyptian styled degrees, like where you have Egyptian symbolism, and mm-hmm. the, the founders are not um, practicing a form of Egyptian Freemasonry, which is Egyptian in its symbols. Uh, though you know there are some symbols that go back to to Egypt, there's no doubt, but. There, there's you know no Egyptian gods involved. There's there's very little reference actually to the spiritual tradition of Egypt. Yeah. Uh, what yeah, we're yeah. what we're actually talking about is we're talking about a Hermetic, a Western Hermetic, Christian Hermetic form of um, uh, of, of Freemasonry, which uh, propels the origins of Freemasonry. Uh, as, as referred to in the Bible beyond the, the Jewish context into the Egyptian. So there's, mm-hmm. there's an understanding that the, the, the story of Genesis and, and Adam and so forth um, uh, also refers to Egypt and that uh, Freemasonry is, um, is, um, is being practiced in Egypt. But it doesn't color really very much the the degree so i was looking for what was original and mm-hmm. to me what was original from the founder's own teachings was what was the most hermetic so uh i went to a very um a useful uh archive called the the gaboria uh, cache mm-hmm. uh which is a um a collection of um of um uh, Mizraim degrees, and also the Kloss archive uh, also has some Mizraim degrees. And uh, there's a few missing, but uh, the Gaboria one is quite almost, quite complete. And uh, looking through the degrees of Mizraim, um, I I read through them and I chose the ones that to me were the most hermetic. So if Egyptian Freemasonry has something to offer the Masonic world, in my opinion, it's it's because it has a hermetic Masonic tradition to to teach, uh, as mm-hmm. opposed to as opposed to the Scottish Rite. What what somebody could argue there's some hermeticism in the Scottish Rite in certain degrees, like the Night of the Sun, and maybe a couple of others, but it is not a hermetic rite. Uh, yeah, in and of itself, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, you know neither are other high degrees like the Royal Arch. Uh, it's not necessarily a hermetic rite. It can be interpreted hermetically, but um, it, it doesn't have its and its uh, purpose to teach a form of hermeticism. Uh, and the Egyptian Egyptian Masonic tradition um, 
has that hermetic component. And the French, uh, uh, Grand Orient, attempted to, um, to solve this issue by creating a, uh, an Egyptian rite which uh, only practiced certain degrees which weren't found in the other rites, like the ancient and accepted Scottish rite okay. and others. And, and we are talking here about the Grand Orient today, so the, the modern Grand Orient, not the one of the 19th century, just to put it clear, right? Yeah. Correct, yeah. So the, the Egypt, Egyptian Freemasonry has a very long um, uh, and sordid and conflictual relationship with the Grand Orient. Absolutely. But uh, not... Not too long ago, in the late 1990s, the Grand Orient decided to activate its 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 charter mm-hmm. and permit a high degree body uh, of Egyptian Freemasonry to start working. But it imposed um, a selection of the degrees uh, which were not did not overlap with the Scottish Rite. Uh, uh, the ancient accepted Scottish right, which, as you know, is a, probably the strongest right in France. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, so basically, what basically my project is very similar to what the Grand Rien did, except that when I looked at the degrees of the Egyptian uh, Grand Rien, I was disappointed um, uh, uh, um, as to the hermetic content of those degrees. So, um, and I, I, I don't know why they chose those degrees I would, over other degrees that I know are more hermetic and that were available, that are available uh, in, in archive form. So um, that was, that was, that's what motivated my choices. I, was, I, wanted to, I wanted to bring out what was unique and hermetic in, mm-hmm. the, uh, in the Egyptian Masonic tradition. I read your interview on this book uh, um, on the pansilvers.com website, which, by the way, is a great website. I have said that often here on the show. And um, um, so you were asked there. And that that article starts with, with this uh, interesting sentence. That's not you. It's, it's, it's Sam Robinson, the editor, saying that. At pansilvers, all the main authors are fans of the Egyptian rite of Memphis Misrim. And that's why we were enthralled to learn Matthew Ravinia was writing this book. So that's how it starts. And um, that relates to my question also to what you just said, why you picked those degrees, because um, it's the most hermetic ones. Um, is the Egyptian right, and especially those degrees that you picked, um, something that, in fact, goes much beyond or aside or whatever Freemasonry and has only uh, a weak link to Freemasonry, at least today, or, or not? Is this book that you wrote here something that a non-Mason should and can take and practice those degrees to have an effect on them or, or not? Uh, I, I think that um, Egyptian Freemasonry um, in the 18th century and beginning of the 19th century is very much uh, in the Masonic tradition. And mm-hmm. the way I would put it is that the, 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 those that are more hermetic in their perspective, um, there's certain hermetic uh, degrees that go very far back. You know, if you think about 
the night of the sun in particular and the history of that degree. It, mm-hmm. it goes quite quite far back in, in, in masonry. Uh, and at the beginnings of the creation or the beginnings of the of the composition of uh, ancient and accepted Scottish rites with the the Lodge of Perfection and and various degrees back then. So um, and there's also another degree which is pretty pretty old in the sense of from a Masonic perspective, high degree Masonic perspective, mm-hmm. and that is the Black Eagle Hosque degree, which we know that Willie um, Hamas uh, and his brother were practicing. Sure. Uh, in Lyon. So I think that uh, it's a tradition which is, you know, whether or not historic historians, Masonic historians would like to admit it or not, is a tradition that's there from the beginning um, of the development of, uh, of modern Freemasonry. But uh, it, it, it becomes excluded uh, for, you know, a lot of reasons. Um, mm. And one of them is the political involvement of the the, um, the 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 Freemasons that are in the right of Israel, um, of course, and, of course, yeah, and yeah. Garibaldi, the, the not to be the least of them, yeah, yeah, not to be the least, yeah. Uh, so there, and and the changes of government, you know, from from uh, from a empire to a monarchy and uh, to back to republics in France, a very unstable period in the French yeah. uh, polit- French political history, so. Uh, these Masons were being, uh, these Masons were very politically active. And so Masons didn't want to be um, guilty by association. Now, on, on the second part with, with them, so there was a kind of an attempt to exclude them and uh, absorb them and, uh, uh, and marginalize Egyptian Freemasons. But um, I think that what we're in front of is a phenomenon that's very similar in a way, uh, not in its spiritual teachings, but just in the way that uh, it used ma- masonry as a vehicle. I think we have spiritual masters or, or alchemists mainly um, and theurgists who are like Pasquale, uh, Martinez de Pasquale, using the Masonic frame to teach a spirituality. Um, that uh, has its roots uh, in the case of Egyptian Freemasonry, has its roots in the Hermetic tradition, and particularly the Platonic, Neoplatonic tradition, or the Platonic academies of Italy. Because as as I indicate in my book, um, uh, all ro- all roads lead to Naples <laughs> for mm-hmm, Egyptian mm-hmm, Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, yeah. Either that or Venice, but certainly certainly uh, Naples and southern Italy. Um, is very is the kind of the 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 spiritual um, heartland of this type of Freemasonry, and it's it's being coupled with uh, the teaching of uh, alchemical concepts. And this the, the, no no person reflects this the the the, the most uh, uh, than uh, Le Baron Tudy. Um, yeah, sure. The uh, yeah, and uh, who who is really modifying uh, Freemasonry to teach an alchemical doctrine and even alchemical methods. And Cagliostro is also a, an example of this, uh, somebody who is changing Freemasonry or adapting Freemasonry in creating a higher degree right, which basically teaches a form of alchemy. Uh, so, um, and in the case of Martinez de Pasquale, well, he's, he's, you know, he's transforming, uh, 
Freemasonry in order to teach the the, the doctrine and the treaty of uh, the reintegration of beings and the surgical methods that he um, uh, that he taught. So we've got kind of like the same phenomenon and and the Masonic world, the regular Masonic world, will reject both of these. Yes, oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, uh, to be in order to be to become a member uh, uh, you have, of the Memphis Mystery today, you have to be a, a Freemason. So that's kind of a, a funny back and forth yeah. story. Yes, exactly. But once there's, again, there's a, sorry, there was a part of your question that I didn't answer. Could somebody pick up the book who's not a, uh, a Freemason and practice what's there? Um, I would think, and I say this in my book, I think that it's important for somebody to have gone through at least the first three degrees of Masonry, um, if not uh, a version of the Royal Arch degree, either in the York Rite or in the Ancient and Accepted Scottish Rite, the 13th and 14th degree. Mm. Uh, before uh, undertaking um, the initiations and the practices that are found in my book. Um, and the reason why I say that is because uh, many of the degrees that are in the book uh, presume that knowledge. Right. Uh, and refer to certain symbols that one would have um, only have seen in, uh, if he, he or she had received those, those initiations. Yes. The spiritual, the 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 spiritual exercises, the alchemical exercises, and 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 uh, things. I mean, I guess they can they kind of exist in a separate, in a way, in a separate category. But they, they they're so linked to the initiatic mm. experience that is in the book that I would find it um, problematic just to separate them without. I think initiations have this. I think this role of grounding the practitioner uh, in a series of symbols and uh, a series of moral lessons uh, and 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 spiritual theory uh, that um, that that's necessary for for spiritual practices. I don't think, for example, that the surgical practices in the Elu Cohen. Um, you know, should be practiced without a, a thorough knowledge of the initiatic uh, rituals either. Yes. Yeah. You're talking about those four degrees you take in the end about their spiritual practices, right? That's what you meant uh, with your advice. You could do it, but it's better understanding when you have done the, the initiative part before, right? Yeah, I think that uh, it would be it would be better and safer. Yeah. Uh, to, to have been initiated uh, through the degrees before. Uh, when practicing uh, at, at, at the appropriate, because just the book um, indicates when to start certain spiritual exercises mm. um, after receiving certain degrees. So, um, you know, I think, I think as a curriculum, it makes sense because what's being taught in the initiation ritual is what's being put into practice. Absolutely. But what I always find interesting, as you say it very clearly, this is also something that would be said in a magical order or in the hermetic order of the golden dawn or so rightly. So, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's, it's, it's wrong. I'm just saying that's, that shows to me that uh, the Memphis Misrim and the Egyptian Freemasonry background is in a way, very theurgical and magical, right? 
Yeah, there's definitely two major um, traditions when it comes to spiritual practice, uh, theurgy mm-hmm. and, uh, and alchemy. Uh, and in alchemy, you've we've got uh, what uh, what's ex- external alchemy, alchemy or mm. or laboratory alchemy, and there's a more a more inner form of alchemy, sure. Uh, sure. which I, I developed in my book based on the way the founders understood uh, internal alchemy to be. Um, so, which is mainly mainly the use of the digestive system uh, yeah. to uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. to. to to cause change and yeah. Um, so yeah. yeah yeah well uh Mathieu, um that that's uh highly highly interesting i i feel we could go on for quite some time but unfortunately our time is is running out so before i let you go um please um just now tell us what i kind of said a little earlier that you have new plans for the coming year hopefully or or maybe a bit later depending also on how much paper will be available on the international market but um isn't that a strange thing to say in 2022 wow but indeed, uh, indeed. <laughs> um but um that's uh, that's the fact no but what is your plans now um for the next book and i see it says volume one on that project so Yeah, well, tell us more about it. Uh, in a way, I, I have, yes, volume one. I have a um, number of writings that um, I've accumulated over the years, papers that I have presented. Um, so I'm kind of doing a best of uh, for uh, for my next book. Um, mm. uh, there's a, a particular article that uh, I think will be interesting to uh, the esoteric community on the bridal chamber, the, 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 the concept of a bridal chamber in ancient Gnosticism, but also something practical uh, there. Um, and um, there's, uh, there's some, so there's also a paper on, uh, on alchemy uh, on there. So a, a few odds and ends. So uh, I, the book is tentatively called uh, Hermetic Musings, uh, volume, volume one. So mm-hmm. just uh Papers and articles that uh, I've been inspired to write um, over the years that uh, I'm hoping would be useful uh, to the esoteric community. Um, uh, yes. Like we say in French. <laughs> exactly. uh, uh, but hopefully it'll be uh, of some interest. Uh, I think that after that, I'll probably um, write uh, a, another book Uh, more on a theme or on a particular tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I have uh, a number of many papers and articles accumulated. Uh, I used to uh, write for Hermetic Virtues um, magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a few articles there. I did uh, an article on the um, the Sabians or the Sabians Um And uh, with the question was 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 there a hermetic religion? Did a hermetic religion ever exist? Uh, and uh, I attempt to answer to that um, to that question. So there's a few few things uh, in my cupboard uh, that uh, I'd like to make available, um, and that uh, hopefully, as I say, will be useful to people. Sounds great. Sounds great. Things to look forward to. Yeah, COVID uh, has had uh, obviously a huge negative impact on people, but uh, from a writer's perspective, 
uh, you know, uh, COVID has, uh, in a way, allowed uh, at least me to uh, focus a little bit more on my writing. So, yeah, um, just because in a kind of unfortunate way, but um, it has allowed me to focus a little bit more on my writing. Where there is that bad joke when we had the first lockdowns here, when one hermeticist was talking to the other, said, you know about the lockdowns and what lockdown I've always lived like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, in hindsight, uh, things always look better than perhaps. Uh, of course. But, uh, and as long as people can make jokes, it's also good. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. We have to stay hopeful and uh, absolutely you know, take advantage of the situation in any way we can spiritually. Uh, good, good time for a quiet meditation and reflection. So um, I try and make the best out of it. Yes, let's do all that. That's good. That's a good final word, Matthew. Um, merci beaucoup uh, for your time and. Um, C'était un grand plaisir de t'avoir ici. So that had to be some French at the end. Little, little, little thing. Thank you guys for understanding. And um, thanks, uh, Matthew. And um, well, good luck for your new projects. And well, keep safe and healthy, of course. Uh, merci à vous, Rudolf. Uh, un plaisir uh, d'être ici. Et puis, uh, j'espère que c'est seulement notre premier contact. Absolument. Au revoir. Thank you, Awa.
Trismegistus. This was the third piece that we heard today by our listener, Benjamin Brown from Scotland. And thank you, Ben, so much for the lovely music you gave us to play here today. His own work, he's a sound engineer, and you'll find more about him on the show notes in on the website. Right, then, thanks, a big thanks to Mathieu Ravinia for his knowledge, for his really um, great experience in the fields that we were talking and the topics that we were talking here about. It was also lovely to talk to him, just great to have him, and I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. So, this brings us to the end of this week's show. As I said, already episode 19, next week it'll go, it'll be episode 20 of this season 7 and uh, we go once again to the other side of our planet and we meet another Australian personality and uh, it's no one less than Professor Carol Cossack from Sydney University and um, I'm sure that most of you do know her because she has written of course extensively on her research about new religions about about occultism and she's a highly highly decorated and very interesting academic and i thought it's great to have an academic back here on the show from time to time it's not always easy to 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 make them talk on an occultist podcast and uh Kasek, she is really somebody who is very not only open-minded but highly interesting to talk to i'm sure you're going to enjoy what you'll have to say Right, and well, that will bring us now to the end of this week's show. Um, I hope you enjoyed. I hope you have time to come back next week. And, but you know, you can listen to those episodes whenever you want. Have you already listened to all of the former ones? No? See? Go back. There is so many of them, and I really think lots of interesting things to find for everyone here. Great, so... For this week, I say goodbye to you, see and hear you next week again, and for today I say, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.